0: There'll be no more kneeling, no more bowing, no more kneeling after a while, no more weeping, no more crying, no more weeping after a while. And before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to be my Lord. And to go home to be with my Lord and be free
1: like to move on to our fourth panel, Life and Labor Among Enslaved Women. I'd like to thank someone who hasn't been thanked sufficiently yet, Helen Pine Timothy, who was instrumental in helping us plan this conference from the get-go, as they say, from day one or even before She visits us from time to time, teaches literature, Caribbean studies, and uh, at the proper time we will show our appreciation for this. Our panel today is Life and Labor Among Enslaved Women. This is another way of doing slavery. That is to say, up until about 25 or 30 years ago, Gender studies in slavery were non-existent, to my knowledge. You know, perhaps someone could correct me. And eventually there'll be probably someone working on it now, teams of people working on children in slavery, not to mention the elderly in slavery. So there are different ways of approaching this very complex subject. Our moderator today will be Florence. Bellon Robertson of the Multicultural Women's Press. And now I'm going to turn it over to her.
2: Thank you. you, want thank you.
3: Good morning, one and all. And thank you, Professor Douglas for inviting me to participate in this most significant conference on the legacy of slavery. Yesterday was enlightening, inspiring, stimulating, and we heard numerous remarks about historical amnesia the silencing of voices. I would say that we, the women, have been doubly victimized, for certainly our voices have been silenced for much too long. Thanks to activists and scholars like my colleagues here, we are beginning to emerge out of that passage of long, long silence. And though we have always been there, always been part of making up this world, in the Creole language in my country, we call it potomitan which is central pillars of our societies. It is good that, at last, we are beginning to truly emerge. And like Maya Angelou's phenomenal woman, in spite of all our obstacles to the centuries, we can stay still, I rise Our first presenter, Brenda Stevenson, is a professor and chair of the History Department at the University of California at Los Angeles, my alma mater. <laughs> Her numerous publications include From Boundage to Freedom, Slavery in America, Life in Black and White, Family and Community in the Slave South Gender Convention, Ideals and Identity Among Antebellum Virginia Slave Women, Black Family Structure in Colonial and Antebellum Virginia, Amending the Revisionist Slave Family and Housing, in Ted Ombi Abolition and Abolition. Jane Boisvert is Assistant Professor of French and Comparative Literature at Russell Sage College in Troy, New York. She obtained a master's degree in French and literature from Boston College and holds a doctorate in French studies at the University at Albany. Dr. Boisvert has published articles on Haiti and French films. Rebecca Hall holds a law degree From Bolt Hall School of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and has been affiliated with the Berkeley Community Law Center, creating and supervising its homelessness program project, prevention project, excuse me. She currently is completing a doctorate in history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Suzette Spencer is a PhD candidate at the University of California, Berkeley, where she is completing a dissertation about marronage in African-American and Caribbean literatures. She is this year's Center for Black Studies Dissertation Scholar. Her publication, Center on Black Women, African Diaspora Literatures, and Slavery. And then our, moderate, our comments will be given by Valentine Motipines, who is Santa Barbara's own. (laughs) Thank you.
4: Um, I'm going to begin my paper on slave women's work with a quote. Um, I was born a slave, but I'd never been one. i have been a worker for good people. You wouldn't call that being a slave. This quote comes from Nicée Pugh, who was a slave woman in Alabama. Slave women like Nicey Pew were workers, of course, and it was the labor that they did more than anything else that defined who they were, where they lived, and how they lived. Certainly it was as laborers in one capacity or another that owners viewed and valued slave women. And it was in the the estimation of their value as workers that slaves shaped and judged their relationship with their owners and to some extent their relationships with one another. Labor, therefore, not only profoundly determined one's life cycle and material well-being, but was one of the most significant bases for slave female identity. It influenced their personalities and health, helped determine their class status among other slaves, was a basis for both esteem and shame, and was fertile ground on which they could register their resistance or accommodation to the institution of slavery. Nice Pugh's cogent statement demonstrates the significance of female slave labor under the best of circumstances, that is, when it was duly appreciated and rewarded by her white owners. For her, the combination was not so much an expression of paternalism, as it fundamentally was transformative. She had not been a slave in pre-Civil War Alabama, but a worker." Delia Garlick felt very differently about her experiences as a laborer in Virginia, Georgia, and Louisiana. Born in 1837 in Powhatan County, Virginia, Delia was sold with her mother as a child to the local sheriff. Her master, she explained, was not mean, but his daughter and his wife were very cruel. While nursing her mistress's baby one day, he hurt his hand. The baby's mother blamed the, child, the slave child and retaliated by running a hot iron up and down Delia's arm and hand, taking off the flesh. Another incident left the young girl beaten almost unconscious. Shortly thereafter, garlic was sold, this time without her mother, to Georgia and then to a man in Louisiana. There she was, quote, a regular field hand, plowing and hoeing and chopping cotton. Deliah's hard, barely-rewarded labor, her multiple seals which severed family ties, and the brutal punishments she experienced embittered and threatened her dehumanization. She felt profoundly her enslavement. It's bad to belong to folks that own you soul and body, she admitted, that can tie you up with your face to the tree and your arms fastened tight around it and take a long curling whip and cut the blood with every lick. The kinds of labor slaves performed, slave women performed, even more so than their color or age, defined their status among other slaves. It was a hierarchy imposed by whites, but respected and refined by the slaves. This was particularly so in those slave holdings that boasted enough slaves to allow some true occupational differentiation. Interviewed decades after emancipation, ex-slaves still held tightly to the status they derived from their slave labor. Cook? No, ma'am. I never cooked until I was married, and I never washed. All I washed was the babies, and maybe my mistress's feet. I was a lady's maid. Former slave Rosa Starkey only recognized two classes of whites, Barker slave owners and poor white folks that don't own, didn't own no slaves. In her estimation, quote, there was more classes amongst the slaves. Starkey went on to delineate five: first, house servants. Second, domestics who worked outside the owner's home, such as carriage drivers, gardeners, Barbers and stablemen. Third were skilled slaves, wheelwrights, wagoneers, blacksmiths, and free foremen. Third were those who cared for livestock and hunting dogs. All these, she, imbued, she informed her interviewer, have good houses and never have to work hard or get a beaten. The fourth class of slaves, she asserted, were the agricultural workers, craters of the wheat, the threshers, and the millers of corn and the wheat, and the feeders of cotton and gin. Last came, quote, the common field niggers. Most slaves were of this last class. The 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 vast majority of female slaves were agricultural workers on farms and plantations that were the mainstay of the southern colonial and antebellum economy. They not only produced subsistence crops and reared livestock, but helped to manufacture raw materials for home consumption and the marketplace. Women produced many of the utilitarian domestic objects that their families used, including textiles, baskets, containers, and buttons, while they also introduced the cultivation and preparation of various African foods. They created, as well, many of the songs slaves used to regulate the pace of their labor, while contributing African-influenced medicinal practices that benefit the health of slave laborers, and sometimes whites, as well. Nicy Pew and Delia Garlic, of course, are only two voices from the millions of women who were slaves in the American South during the Antebellum Era. Their individual stories can tell us much about the variety of experiences that characterize slave women's lives and labor. Their autobiographical snapshots denote different but also inspire scholars to explore commonalities, despite what seemingly were very different experiences as slaves, for example, women like Niy Pugh and Delia Garlic both contributed substantially to the development of the southern agri- agrarian landscape and economy while shaping the material and ideological cultures of its workers. They both shared the inordinate burden physical and psychological of having too little control of their labor, the rewards or reprisals it brought or the images of them as working women which evolved. Slave female labor, indisputably valuable and sometimes even openly appreciated, as Nancy Pugh suggested, had profound repercussions on the ways in which other antebellum Americans viewed slave women as women. Indeed, the nature of and conditions surrounding slave women's work often meant a constant unraveling of their female and certainly feminine image in the larger society. One of the principal differences between the slave experiences of men and women was that most of the kind of labor that men, slave men perform bolstered images of their manliness because it emphasized masculine traits of physical strength and endurance. It is not difficult to understand, therefore, how slave women's work, particularly their field work, which often was identical to that of slave men, profoundly defeminized them in the eyes of casual observers and owners and overseers as well. It cast slave women in what became the stereotypical image of the workhorse on the one hand and eroticized them as Jezebel out to use their sexual powers to lighten their workloads on the other. The development of either side of this perverse mythology, as one might imagine, had devastating effects on slave women's lives. Slaveholders relied on workhorse images to push female laborers inordinately hard sometimes denying them minimal levels of material support and punishing them severely when women did not, in their estimation, comply. Jezebel's, on the other hand, faced constant sexual harassment, threats of abuse, and often were the victims of rape, sodomy, and sexual battery. Others, in related fashion, were forced to comply to dehumanizing breeding schemes. Far from escaping from labor or gaining from it, as those who would labor these victims of sex crimes as prostitutes suggest, the sexual labor of slave women was just that, labor. Only its implications were much more harsh and long-term than the labor they did in the fields or as domestics as the hundreds of thousands of biracial children born to them only began to suggest... Frederick Law Olmsted's remarks upon seeing a gang of slave women repairing roads in South Carolina are indicative of the grossly negative images female labor routinely inspired curiously as nowhere in his observations does such an unflattering view of male laborers emerge one should note in particular the combination of deep revulsion and attraction to Olmsted in Olmsted's description his stunning conflation of the images of slave women as both workhorse and Jezebel and I quote clumsy, awkward, gross, elephantine in all their movements, pouting, grinning, and leering at us, sly, sensual, and shameless in all their expressions and demeanor. I never before had witnessed, I thought, anything more revolting than the whole scene. End of quote. Almstead's description is so grotesque that one almost loses the labor context from which he spoke, one in which women who were in the majority worked alongside men filling holes in a muddy, rutted country road with soil that they had hand carted and logs that they had cut and hand-laid. In their prime, slave women such as those who encountered did as much and sometimes more labor as slave men, yet their experiences as laborers could be quite different from those of their male counterparts. These gender differences were manifest in a number of ways that this paper will address, particularly the sexual nature of slave women's work. While men and women who were field workers often did the same kinds of work, the workloads of women, the physical and psychological conditions under which they labored, and the rewards for their efforts often differed substantially, sometimes profoundly, from those of men. Moreover, occupational differences outside the field, for instance, were substantial. A significant minority of females, but many fewer males, were domestics. Large holdings employed both, but antebellum women dominated these positions, especially amongst smallest laborers holdings. Female domestics were nurses, maids, cooks, seamstresses, spinners, weavers, and midwives, while in southern towns they also were waitresses and washerwomen. Male slaves, on the other hand, had greater opportunity to hold skilled and supervisory positions that privileged their experiences in both rural and urban settings. Men held exclusively the elite occupations of blacksmith, cooper, painter, wheelwright, carpenter, miner, tanner, and joiner, and therefore had greater opportunity to earn cash, extra cash, and to hire themselves out. They also held leadership positions as drivers, overseas foremen, and head craftsmen, which was extremely rare for women. Southern female slaves, especially those who were field workers, routinely worked longer hours and were responsible for more work, a combination actually of skilled, manual, domestic, and sexual labor that continued well into the night and during the time that male slaves traditionally had off. The phenomenon of assigning slave women full-time field work coupled with occasional or even permanent part-time work as domestics or skilled laborers such as weaving, sewing, or midwifery was especially important on small to middling-sized farms or places. Plantations with slave populations of fewer than 20 slaves. Fannie Moore, for example, recalled that her mother, quote, worked in the field all day and pieced, all night. Then she had to spin enough bread to make four cups for the white folks every night. While sometimes I never got to bed, had to hold the light for her to see by, end of quote. Sarah Colquitt's experiences as a slave on a small tobacco farm in Virginia and later on a large cotton plantation in Alabama were rather exemplary. Her Virginia owners were, quote, good, she admitted, but... Quote, Us had to work hard and late, serve, routinely performed a combination of field and domestic tasks, all the while caring for her infant child. Quote, I used to take my littlest baby with me. I had two children, and I'd tie it up to a tree limb to keep off the ants and bugs while i hold and work the feral. Once her field work task was completed at the end of the day, she had other labor to complete. Quote, I was one of the spinners, too, and had to do six cuts to the reel at the time and do it at night plenty times. End of quote. Size work in the fields and spinning, she concluded. Sometimes I'd hope... I'd help with the cooking up at the big house when the real cook was sick or us had a past of company. Sarah's labor routine changed dramatically when she was sold in the late 1850s to a planter in Alabama who had enough slaves to regulate her work sphere to that of his home. There she again was responsible for most of the housework, the cleaning, cooking, and sewing. Once his slave status became principally that of a domestic, usually their labor, like that of Sarah's in Alabama, was confined to their master's home, barnyard, loom house, kitchen, and gardens, although it was not unusual for slave domestics to be sent to the fields during harvest time. Female field laborers, even those on large plantations, might be called on for some sort of domestic labor if the master or mistress wanted to fill some temporary void. It was unusual, therefore, except for on the especially large plantation with 50 or more slaves, for women to be merely confined to agricultural work for the duration of their prime status. Young slave females and elderly women had even more diverse assignments. And it was not just that men did more labor in the fields. The farm journals of planters as well as the diaries of observers of slave women's labor routinely note that women and men perform comparable levels of work in the field. Rising early in the morning to the sound of an overseer or driver blowing a horn and working until nightfall for five and one half to six days a week, female laborers routinely did the same kinds and amount of field work as males. Some historians, for example, contend that men did the heaviest and dirtiest work, especially clearing new fields, plowing, and ditching. Throughout the South, however, women also were responsible for this kind of work. Amelia Walker of Virginia, for example, remember watching her mother working in the fields. And I quote, Mama plowed with three horses. Ain't that something? Thought women was supposed to work long with men. I did. End of quote. Henrietta McCulloughs of North Carolina concurred proudly. Quote, I plowed and dug ditches and cleared new ground, and hard work never hurted me yet. Um, they only had one man, Uncle Most, and so of course he had to have some help um, to tend 100 acres. End of quote. Seeing a winch plowing, one Mississippi slavery observer noted, quote, I asked him, the overseer, if they usually held the plow. He replied that they often did, end of quote. Frederick Long says observations concurred. He not only noted women routinely plowing, hoeing, ditching, and repairing roads, but also involved in the dirty task of fertilizing, quote, I saw women working again in large gangs with men. In one case, they were distributing manure, which, has been, uh, which had been carted into heaps. A number of the women were carrying it in, um, carrying it in from the heaps in from the heap in baskets on their heads, and one in her apron, and spreading it with their hands between the ridges on which the cotton grew last year. The remainder, he continued, followed with great long-handled, heavy, clumsy holes and pulled down the ridges over the manure and so new ridges for the next next planting. Male slaves, on the other hand, usually were either responsible for skilled or manual labor, not both, and comparatively few routinely worked at night or on Saturday afternoons and Sundays, their traditional leisure time, which many use in self-employment. Moreover, they received greater rewards for their labor than female slaves, a larger food allowance, less responsibility for care of their offspring and home environment, greater social freedom and physical mobility, and more opportunities to move up the occupational ladder to a supervisory role. Of course, there were many exceptions in each case, particularly because the size of the slaveholding, the gender ratio of the prime workers, and the kind of major crop being produced had much influence on the slave's experience as worker. Charlie Hussey Recalled, for example, that on his farm both men and women did work at night after they returned from the field. Quote, the woman's cooked supper was the men chopped wood. Still, these broad differences hold more than they collapse. Motherhood, of course, added another dimension to the labor of female slaves. Clearly, slave women were the principal rearers of their children, whether matrifocal, nuclear, or extended families. As such, they were responsible for their day-to-day care, even when owners provided nurses. Francis Willingham, for for one, recalled the work women did at night while men rested. Quote, When slaves come in from the fields at night, the women cleaned up their houses after they did, after they did it, and then washed and got up early next morning and put the clothes out to dry. Men's would eat, sit around talking to one another, and then go to bed. But it was not just the food and clothing preparation, social and skilled instruction, nurture and discipline of slave children that equal large amounts of additional work for these women. It also was the labor negotiations with with own with owners, mistresses, overseers, and drivers that mothers reluctantly but often forcefully entered on behalf of their children. They knew only too well the problems their offspring would face once they entered the slave work world. They also knew that once a slave started to work it placed a real value on him or her, a value that owners did not hesitate to accrue through through sale or exchange. Certainly the large numbers of slave women who, who headed their own families or lived with their children while their husbands lived elsewhere Often found themselves in this kind of precarious situation. Betty Moore's description of her mother's relationship with their overseer on a South Carolina plantation is instructive. Quote, the old overseer, he hate my mammy because she fight him for beating her children. While she gets more whoopings than that than anything for that than anything else, she has twelve children. A slave woman from Georgia uttered similar complaints, but about her mistress, quote, My master's wife was very mean to all of us. She sold my oldest child to somebody where I couldn't ever see him anymore and kept me. She took my baby child and put her in the house with her to nurse her baby and make fire. And all the while she um, was in the house with her, she had to sleep on the floor. Nancy Williams of Yanceyville, Virginia, recalled the story of Aunt Sissy, a slave woman who called their owner a mean, dirty nigger trader when he decided not to keep her daughter, Lucy's labor for his own, but to sell it when her son Henley died sometime later, Cissy refused to publicly acknowledge any grief for her son's death, preferring instead to take again the opportunity to voice her bitter feelings about Lucy's sale quote and Cissy ain't sorry much the death of her child, Williams concluded. She went straight up to her old master and shouted his face, "Praise God, praise God, my little child is gone to Jesus, That's one child of mine you're never going to sell." Undoubtedly, slave mothers often damaged their own relations with labor supervisors while trying to negotiate the work their children did and conditions under which they worked. Likewise, much of the negotiations slave women had to enter into as laborers was across gender lines, often offering further difficulties. The world in which they lived and worked was not just racist, it was profoundly sexist. To be doubly discriminated as workers with virtually no chance of gaining A position of authority at their workplaces meant that these women had extremely little bargaining power with the men who inevitably had the last say as to their work assignments, conditions, rewards, and punishments. More often than not, slave women must have felt themselves caught between a rock and a hard place as workers. If on the one hand they resisted their workloads or conditions too much, their male supervisors... Thank you. Uh, might feel especially threatened by the undermining power of those considered their inferiors as women, blacks, and workers. If, on the other hand, they were submissive to compliant workers or compliant workers, they ran the risk of arousing the sexual attention of those in charge. And then there always was the threat of engendering hostility from fellow workers who might feel betrayed in either instance. Another important difference between the experience of female slave and male laborers, perhaps the most significant difference of all, was the sexualized component of women's work. Most male slaves did not face the constant sexual harassment or battery that many slave women confronted and most feared. Indeed, one aspect of female labor that scholars have not readily recognized as as such was the demand that slave girls and women act as sexual outlets for male owners, overseers, drivers, and male slaves as well. The debate over slave breeding rages on although there is substantial evidence to document its prevalence throughout the South and across the generations. Yet the use of the female slave's body to produce a new crop of slave laborers was only one part of the phenomena of their sexual enslavement. Masters and other males who came in contact with slave women expected and often demanded their compliance with requests for sexual favors. It literally became part of their jobs. The prices of slave women reveal the value slaveholders placed on this female quote-unquote asset. Throughout the South and over the antebellum decades, male slaves generally cost more than females, skilled laborers more than field hands, and the young more than the elderly. The only real exception to these rules of the market was the fancy girl trade and quote, good breeding women. Quote, Marie was pretty. That's why he took her to Richmond to sell her. You see, you could get a powerful lot of money in those days for a pretty gal. Carol Ann Randall explained of her a sister's sale to the Carolinas. Joe Brune of Alexandria, Virginia, um, place Emily Russell, a beautiful mulatto, whom he planned to sell as a prostitute in New Orleans, on the market for $1,800. Slave autobiograph- autobiographer James Minneton explained, it is under the mildest form of slavery, as it exists in Maryland, Virginia, and Kentucky, that the finest specimen of colored females are reared for the express purpose of supplying the market to a class of economical Louisiana and Mississippi gentlemen who do not wish to incur the expense of rearing legitimate families. They are nevertheless, on account of their attractive." exposed to the most shameful degradation. Pennington went on to illustrate his claim by presenting the case of slaves Charles Mary Jane and Emily Catherine Edmondson, ages 14 and 16, priced together at $2,250. They charged such an exorbitant fee, Pennington claimed, because they were intended to sell them as prostitutes in the Deep South. Slave prices, therefore, typically varied according to slaves' age, sex, health, skill, but for women, an additional criteria included their sexual attractiveness and fertility. William Forbes, an agent working for Virginia planter George Carter, for example, had occasion to write him to him explaining the kinds of slaves that were for sale. Carter might be particularly interested, he noted, in his description of, in, quote, a very likely female slave, a virgin of about 14 or 15. I'm going to end my paper there because I'm almost out of town, but it's just food for thought, and I'll address questions later. Thank you.
2: Good morning. I brought you some some overhead, so that's why the screen is coming down. My paper is called uh, Haiti's Colonial Past, Female Resistance in Saint-Domingue. Resistance has long been associated with the people of Haiti. In the 20th century alone, there were examples of the powerless rising up to challenge and oftentimes defeat their powerful oppressors. Caco rebels used armed resistance to face American marines who occupied their country from 1915 to 1934. Haitians also managed the peaceful overthrow of the second generation of Duvalier rule in 1986. And quite recently, in 1994, they were able to reverse the coup d'etat of Sidras and bring their lawfully elected president back to power. But resistance is not new to the inhabitants of the island country, male or female. Written history and storytelling to this day recount the courage of the indigenous queen and poetess Anacaona, who tried to resist the takeover of Hispaniola by the early Spanish colonizers uh, in, starting in 1492. Today my presentation will focus on the period of the French colonization of the land they call Saint-Domingue, which they inhabited from 1697 to 1804. In the course of this presentation I will first briefly discuss the brutal conditions of slavery both going to and uh, living in the colony. I will then turn to the various means of resistance slaves found to challenge and ultimately overthrow the French. Most of the material in this presentation was written in French, and I am responsible for the translations. Divide and Conquer French colonists, like other exploiters throughout the world, seem to have embraced these words as their motto or philosophy in exploiting others. For the African slaves who were to be transported to the French colony of Saint-Domingue, division began at the various ports of embarkation, where they were split up into different language groups to keep them from communicating with each other. Upon arrival in the colony, captives were further divided into field slaves, domestic servants, or bosses or drivers. Creoles, or the slaves who were born in the colony, were considered superior to the Bosal who had newly arrived from Africa. Those who held on to their African religious beliefs were seen as uncivilized, while other so-called civilized slaves converted to Christianity. Some were granted their freedom, yet others remained enslaved. Finally, slaves were classified according to their different interracial skin tones. But the human beings that the colonists considered as mere property would eventually proclaim their own motto, la liberté ou la mort, freedom or death. Tenacious and ever-increasing resistance led, in fact, to the unfathomable, the undoing of the colonial regime, including the defeat of Napoleon's troops, aided by yellow fever, and the proclamation of the independent Republic of Haiti on January 1, 1804. Tomes have been devoted to the fight for Haitian independence by such male heroes as Boukman, Toussaint Louverture, and Dessalines. Yet fighting beside the men at every level of resistance were heroic women, many of whose names have gone unrecorded. As we shall see, resistance began early in Saint-Domingue, which has often been described by historians as a colonial hell. Slaves were treated like animals. They were inspected and purchased at markets, branded on both sides of their chest and forced to work practically naked under the tropical sun. Jean Fouchard, in a book earlier in the 20th century, um, recounted this anecdote of European girls arriving in in the colony and noticing that the slaves had practically no clothes on, and uh, the slave owner said to her, why don't you ask us to clothe our cows, mules and dogs? Slave women were given hardly any consideration because of their sex or physical condition. They cleared the land, tilled the soil, dug ditches and canals, planted and picked cotton and coffee, and cut sugarcane just like the men. Female slaves received less taxing duties only during the last few months of pregnancy or while nursing their babies. All slaves were retu- retuned- routinely underfed, Moreau de Saint-Marie noted, uh, in talking about the the meals that the slaves would eat after working all day in the field, he said, um, after the Negro has eaten his banana, he goes to bed. Slaves were often cruelly and indiscriminately punished. Recaptured runaway slaves would have one ear nailed to a post, and they would have to stand there. Even pregnant women were not spared the torture of the forepost, according to CLR James. Here's a picture of the forepost. In order to accommodate the belly of the pregnant woman, they would dig out, uh, scoop out the area under her, her belly so that she would fit and, and be able to be flogged in that position. A hole was dug in the earth to accommodate her unborn child. Female slaves were the object of additional discrimination and mistreatment because of their sex. As the property of the slave owner, the slave woman was routinely used as his sexual object to take or to give to others. In this atmosphere of physical and sexual degradation, many slaves perished quickly. In fact, life expectancy from the moment of capture in Africa has been estimated at only seven years in the colony. Many slaves, however, turned to diverse forms of resistance from suicide, non-cooperation, abortion, infanticide, to marronage, voodoo, poisoning, and revolt. Marronage is running away. I'll talk about that in a minute. Even in the ports of origin in Africa, slaves resorted to escape or suicide to avoid being deported. Acts of resistance were so common, in fact, that masters of slave ships carried revolt insurance and discovered the necessity of chaining slaves to the ships. Here's a picture of the position of slaves in the ships. One ship record reports that an anonymous 16-year-old girl refused to eat and ultimately took her own life to avoid being taken from her homeland. Resistance continued throughout the Middle Passage. Both men and women, like the one pictured in the movie Amistad, threw themselves into the sea or found other methods of suicide, like hitting their heads against the sides of the ship or holding their breath until they died. Suicide persisted as a means of resistance, especially among women in Saint-Domingue. At times, however, suicide went beyond personal reasons to become an offensive measure, hitting the the colonists in their pocketbooks. Less self-destructive means of resistance were practiced in the colony as well. Acts of non-cooperation were especially prominent among slave women. In the fields, female workers' feigned illness, were disorderly and disobedient. Domestic servants were often overtly resistant to their master's orders. At certain times of the year, slaves put in 18 hour days in the sugar mills, working both day and night shifts, where they only got uh, more than four hours, uh, little more than four hours of sleep at night. Slave women were chiefly responsible for feeding the cane into the mill, and in their exhaustion with no sleep and the long days that they put in, the women often would fall asleep and their hands or arms would get caught in the mill and in the machinery. These hazardous conditions led to further acts of resistance. Two female workers on one plantation categorically refused to work the night shift. One of the women even threatened the driver and told him that if there were any night work to be done, he would have to do it himself. Low fertility and infant mortality were widespread throughout the Caribbean area during colonial times. Reasons to explain these facts are varied and somewhat controversial. On one hand, the brutal ocean voyage, harsh working conditions, cruel punishments, lack of proper nourishment and rest, as well as destruction of family life and the decadent atmosphere in the colony could all have contributed to low uh, female um, production, reproduction, and to sterility and infant mortality. On the other hand, while no hard evidence exists, some female slaves may have turned to abortion and infanticide as desperate attempts to manage their own fertility, because many of them were just used as baby machines to produce more slaves. One of the most persistent and effective means of resistance for the slaves of Saint-Domingue was marronage. Maroons were slaves who ran away to live in groups in the mountains, forests, savannas, or even in the towns, pretending to be free. Although it is difficult to determine the number of slave women who became maroons, there were probably fewer women than men, because they had responsibilities of taking care of children, and it was hard to run away with a child. However, from this tattered copy of the colonial newspaper, Affiche Americaine, we find the names of two runaway women. Sarah and Adelaide, who were being sought by their owners. Some women, like a certain Rosette, escaped and were recaptured and punished hundreds of times, a sure sign of the slaves' determination to be free. Marronage was a crucial step in overcoming the deculturation slaves had suffered at the hands of the colonists and in turning the tide to additional forms of resistance. Away from the watchful eye of the owners, Maroon slaves were able to consolidate themselves, preserve their own culture, and make plans in secret. They continued to practice Vodou, an amalgam of various African religions which had taken on the rites and images of the Catholic faith. Vodou gave the slaves a new sense of identity and became a source of inspiration in the fight against slavery. Female sa- slaves served right alongside the men in the practice of Vodou and the acts of resistance it spawned. Makandal, a maroon leader and Vodou priest, organized his followers to outright rebellion by poisoning slave owners and their families. A young slave woman, Assam, participated in what became known as the Makandal Affair. Assam was later accused of twice administering poison to her master. She was then tortured into revealing the names of her co-conspirators. An important Mambo, or priestess, in the history of Vaudu was Cécile Fatiman. This slave woman took part in leading a Vaudu ceremony which would come to be considered the founding moment of the Haitian nation. On August 4, 1791, Cécile Fatimon and Duty held a religious and organizational meeting in the Cayon woods where slaves from over a hundred plantations were assembled. One week later, a full-scale revolt became the Haitian Revolution. Over 200 sugar plantations and 1,800 coffee plantations were burned and 1,000 white people were killed. As the revolution continued, slave women were willing to do practically anything to help the revolutionary cause, including selling their bodies to obtain information, gunpowder, or weapons. Continuing a West African tradition, like the female soldiers of Daume, certain women actually fought in the ranks against Napoleon's army. Women such as Sanit Bel-Air were considered as courageous and ferocious as the male soldiers. Another female soldier, Marie-Jeanne Lamartiniere, is held to be Haiti's answer to Joan of Arc. Fighting alongside her husband, an officer in Toussaint Louverture's army, Marie-Jeanne helped to defend the village of Creta Pierrot during the course of a three-day battle. The persistence and effectiveness of slave resistance in Saint-Domingue led to the first successful slave revolt and to the foundation of the first black republic. As we have seen, women played a vital role at all levels of resistance and succeeded in abolishing slavery in their country. The success of the Haitian Revolution was due in large part to their willingness to accept the fact that no sacrifice is too great. Their actions from covert to outright rebellion led to the ultimate liberation of their people. Thank you.
5: Good morning. <laughs> so I have to get that close. Um, my name is Rebecca Hall, and the title of my paper is Not Killing Me Softly, African-American Women, Slave Revolts, and the Historical Construction of Racialized Gender. There exists a scholarly consensus among historians of slave resistance that women did not participate in slave revolts. It was interesting to (laughs) talk right after your. um, A couple of recent examples. In in the book Gabriel's Rebellion, Douglas Egerton writes, quote, In forming his inner circle, Gabriel chose no women. Women of African descent inhabited a separate domestic sphere in the new world, just as they had in the old. In the introduction to More Than Chattel, David Barry Gaspar and Darlene Clark Hine write, If slave women did not figure prominently in the organization of collective resistance, such as revolt, it was not because they lacked the will, but because, as mothers of children and nurturers of their families, they engaged in less confrontational or nonviolent forms of resistance. Um, There's been a little bit of scholarship in the French Caribbean that, that, like Bernard Moyd and the work you're doing that talks about women's martial resistance, but nothing in the United States. Um, In my research, in my dissertation, um, I argue that women, in fact, planned, participated in, and led slave revolts in the United States. In this presentation, I'm going to address what gets in the way of seeing women in revolt, give examples of of a methodology I'm developing which allows us to recover these women's stories, and finally, I will show how excavating the process by which the masking of African American women's agency in slave revolt occurs sheds light on certain key elements that constitute one the system the system of racialized gender that developed during slavery and two continues to this day as a legacy of slavery. I'll be making the argument that those who documented the occurrences of slave revolts, the slave ship captains, the government investigators, the judicial system, the slave owners, the military, and so on, were engaged in a process of pacification of enslaved women. And I'll be making the argument that many historians who study these sources, who categorize and define acts of resistance, and are charged with creating the historical memory of today— are also engaged in a process of pacification of African American women. I'm exploring what I call the pros of passivity and its attendant mechanisms of pacification. These are the methods used to mask the agency of African American women in slave revolts. The investment in this pacification differed in different historical locations. I argue that by tracking these investments in these different locations, we can trace key threads in the creation and maintenance of systems of racialized gender, because it lays bare historical mechanisms of domination. I'll begin by walking you through some of the primary sources on slave revolts, and then we'll come back to the issue of how historians treat these sources. So what shapes the primary sources? I look at how the original sources themselves are created, at what blind spots they contain so that we can read these sources against the grain. In my dissertation, I engage in a transatlantic social history of African American women in slave revolts, beginning with a study of female martial traditions in various West and West Central African cultures during the era of the slave trade. and then I can continue with an analysis of women's particip- participation in revolts during the Middle Passage, and then ending with a discussion of three revolts in the colonial port city of New York, in which women played prominent leadership roles. I engage in a careful interrogation of of the, these primary sources to show what's at stake in masking women of women's actions in each specific historical location. In this presentation, I only have time to analyze one slave ship revolt and just begin the discussion of of New York. Um, so. I chose to look at the infamous 1721 revolt aboard the Robert because some of you might be familiar with with, with that revolt. Um, And it can shed light on on the intersections of of several contemporaneous discursive practices which enacted the pacification to which I'm referring. Um, We'll be able to see this prose of passivity in action. So in this revolt Atkins, a British naval officer, recounts the story of quote a woman slave. Um, and how she is seen, seen as a body without agency and without subjectivity. And here's a quote from him. We met there the Robert of Bristol. Captain Harding gave us the following melancholy story. Tamba had combined with three or four of the stoutest of his countrymen to kill the ship's company and had near-affected it by means of a woman slave, who, being more at large, was to watch the proper opportunity. She brought him word one night that there were no more than five white men upon the deck, and they asleep, bringing him a hammer at the same time, all the weapons that she could find, to execute the treachery. He encouraged the accomplices what he could with the prospect of liberty, but could now, at the push, engage only one more and the woman to follow him upon the deck. So then, after describing the details of the crew killed and how the slaves were finally subdued, Atkins concludes his, his report, The reader may be curious to know their punishment, why Captain Harding weighing the stoutness and worth of the two slaves did, as in other countries they do by rogues of dignity, whip and scarify them only. The woman he hoisted up by the thumbs whipped and slashed her with knives before the other slaves till she died. If we carefully examine the language of Atkins' report, we can uncover some of the captain's assumptions about the unnamed woman slave's more passive role. For one thing, it's not clear from this account where the specific information came from. How did Captain Harding determine that it was Tomba who was the leader, rather than one of the other men, or the woman slave, who actually chose the time and freed the other participants? In any case, it's clear from the tone of the document that the nameless woman would never be viewed as an instigator, much less a leader, no matter what the actual facts were. It was Tomba with his stout countrymen who affect the revolt by means of a woman's slave. The woman doesn't have any agency at all in this construction; she becomes merely a means like a hammer as a means for breaking chains. She is actively pacified. The woman was not viewed as a participant in the revolt. So when he says, Tamba encouraged the accomplices what he could, but could at the push engage only one more and the woman to follow him upon the deck. So here the nameless woman slave isn't even an accomplice, despite the fact that she supplied the weapons and decided when to attack. And she's certainly not viewed as the rogue of dignity, whatever that is, um, meriting a, quote, mere whipping. Um, and is instead tortured to death. So I ask, why are the slavers unable to see the woman slave as anything other than a means to enact? Societal expectations about who is even capable of a political act shape that, that society's ability to see and record those acts. Who is designated as a political actor in a given society is partially a function of discourse. And the same Enlightenment philosophy, which defined the politics and political theory in Europe and North America in this period, viewed slaves and all women, as lacking political rights or agency. Freedom, and the political power that by definition naturally comes with it, was in fact defined by its opposite, the powerlessness and lack of freedom of women and slaves, and especially women slaves. Thus, when white men fight back, it was seen as a revolution, um, that is, a change within the field of the political. When women or slaves fought back, it was seen as a rebellion, Um, that is, a rebellion in the face of valid authority. They are are seen as rogues or rebellious children. And women slaves, when they fight back, they are geometrically foreclosed from, from the realm of the political. They cannot even be seen as rebelling. Thus, a descending hierarchy emerges among slaves. Slave men are generally not viewed as political actors. Um, although, as we saw in the Robert, certain men, such as Tomba, could occasionally rise to the level of a rogue of dignity, earning some grudging respect. The unnamed woman slave, however, is pacified, and she has no authorship of her own acts. Her acts of resistance are deconstructed into a means by which male slaves act. On the Robert, slave men could be recognized as rebelling, but because of the further remove of the enslaved woman from the realm of the political, the woman slave's ability to act is practically incomprehensible, although it is in cru- it's crucial to note that her, her non-actions seem to strike Captain Harding as particularly transgressive. It's hard not to be struck by the detailed description of her punishment. Her punishment for violating the rule which requires her passivity is turned into a spectacle by violating her body. The, quote, woman slave had to be hung alive by her hands, hands which act, and then slashed into pieces until she no longer existed, she becomes a spectacle. On the, Robert, the, on the slave ship, the Robert, the act of her pacification is physically inscribed on the woman slave's body, and her acts of revolt are dropped from the record. Um, Sort of big picture a little bit about Middle Passage Revolt, Um, David Eltis, David Richardson and and colleagues recently created a database uh, on the transatlantic slave trade that catalogs over 25,000 slave ship voyages, and they found revolts documented in approximately one in ten of those voyages. Um, One of their findings was that the more women on board the ship, the more likely a revolt would occur. occur. And they have been treating this uh, primarily as a statistical anomaly. Um, because historians know that women didn't participate in revolt. Um, I, I just want to say in my study of the data, I find particularly striking that there were more revolts on these ships where large numbers of women were on board from cultures that had a highly developed martial, female martial tradition. But that's a whole nother paper. I don't have time to talk about that. In my dissertation, I engaged in a qualitative analysis of several slave-ship revolts, like I did with the Robert, um, um, and find that the women used their unchained status to revolt, and that despite this fact, slavers continued to leave women unchained for most of the passage. One, because of the reasons I've discussed, that they were on the whole incapable of seeing women's active participation in revolt, and two, because they wanted to maintain greater access to women during the Middle Passage. So I'm, I'm... transition to New York, I'm currently engaging in research concerning slave revolts in colonial New York City. Women's participation in the major revolts of the earlier colonial period is quite prominent in the primary sources, although they're not discussed by historians. I'm trying to understand right now what what would allow the colonial authorities to be able to see these women's actions, whereas those engaged in the slave trade in the same time period and historians today are unable to acknowledge them. The project of uncovering and analyzing these differences is central to my methodology, as each specific historical location has its various investments which allow or disallow seeing women as participants in violent collective action. My hypothesis is that the project of those engaged in the slave trade was to try to control a nameless, faceless mass of human cargo in order to maximize profit. Early colonial formations, on the other hand, such as the settler colony of New York, were organic communities where everyone knew everyone else and lived in close quarters with each other. There was much more fluidity in this context, and despite the fact that New York City in 1703 census was 20% slave, the mechanisms of slave control were much less rigid in this port city. The first documented instance of violent revolt occurred in 1708, when a woman and a man killed their master, his pregnant wife, and five children. The male slave was hung, and the woman was burned at the stake. A wider plot was revealed, and two other men were hung as well. Following this revolt, the first laws designed to prevent and punish slave uprisings were written, which were then invoked in the subsequent revolt of 1712, where nine whites were killed and 11 wounded. There were at least seven women involved in this revolt, including three who committed suicide before capture um, and four who, who were tried. Two of those tried, Sarah and Abigail, were convicted and hung. I'm now tracing how structures of racialized gender and social control of slaves in revolt helped to shape the society of colonial New York at large. For example, by the Revolt of 1741, the colonial government's increasing investment in keeping slaves and Irish workers separate through, the, through racialization, becomes strikingly apparent with the execution of Negro Peg, who was a white Irish woman accused of entertaining Negroes and conspiring with them. So, the second part of my project is to analyze the way historians understand African-American women's participation in revolts. I'll show that many historians are also engaged in a process of pacification of African-American women, though for reasons which are profoundly different from those of the slaveocracy. So when for example Elizabeth Fox Genovese argues that demarcating revolt as masculine as a masculine enterprise is liberatory for African Americans because it restores their quote gender what is she writing against when John Blassingame states that there were more slave revolts in Latin America because there were more male slaves there what is he writing against when Herbert Gutman argues in The Black Family and Slavery and Freedom that slave men were protectors and providers for their women what is he arguing against the alleged pathology of African-American gender roles caused by the supposed creation of the black matriarch and the, quote, emasculated black man in slavery. In response to the critique that African-American gender roles were, and therefore are, pathological, historians of slave resistance are caught in a Manichean binary of masculine active versus feminine passive, constructing a passivity for women in order to shore up men's masculinity. And the infamous Moynihan report didn't create the formulation of the black matriarch and the emasculated black man. It just inscribed the myth as public policy. This myth is as whole is. Don't tell me I have five minutes. Jeez, <laughs> God. This myth is as old as the American profession of history itself. Here's a quotation from a historian uh, in 18. 18- 89 in The Plantation Negroes, Freeman. He says, It was black women who really molded the institution of marriage among plantation Negroes. To them, its present degradation is chiefly ascribable. Um, I'm going to skip the historiographical thing about um, Phillips and Elkin's response and black Sambo and whatever, because and, I don't have time. But... Um, but um, this whole thing about, you know, trying to write against the black Sambo, this passive male slave. Um, uh, you know, in the Moynihan Report, it's captured, um, it, 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 Moynihan says that at the heart of the deterioration of the fabric of the Negro society is the de- deterioration of the Negro family, um, evidenced by the rates of divorce illegitimacy and the rate, rate of, f- of female-headed households. And this is Uh, And, of course, a family where women lead does not merit the designation of a family at all. Um, It's a female-headed household, which it sounds to me like Medusa, like some kind of monster, you know, that produces other, gives birth to monsters. Um, um, So, you know, in in, in in 1998, uh, as recently as 1998, Orlando Patterson put it this way. Racist oppression took many forms and damaged African-American men and women in numerous ways, but the single greatest form of ethnic domination was the relentless effort to emasculate the African-American male in every conceivable way and at every turn. Um, So when these historians are writing about how women didn't undermine men by assuming masculine roles, they're, they're writing against this this mythology. So um, they're arguing that, they're writing to, to say that African Americans were not pathological, that they had the correct, that is, the European gender roles. The historiography of slave rebellion is engaged in an ongoing project of pacification of enslaved women, a pacification seen as necessary in the face of danger to counteract the threat of black women. And... Let me just make myself, uh, my position perfectly clear. I don't believe emasculation is a legacy of slavery. However, the harmful discourse of emasculation is a legacy of slavery. The term emasculation is a gendered metaphor for the exploitation and oppression of a people. And as bell hooks and many other feminist scholars have pointed out, Freedom is equated with men who are free and who have free access to their women, while domination is equated with rendering the subjugated man as impotent. This is why the discourse of emasculation is intrinsically reactionary and misogynistic. It can't help but be interpolated into the system of of national, colonial, racial exploitation where women's bodies are the boundary markers for the nation. and, and patriarchy. So in uncovering the legacy of slavery, which is the point of this con- conference, we must develop another language for capturing the violation of black men's peoplehood. Um, as Bell hooks states, we need a revolutionary vision of black liberation, one that emerges from a feminist standpoint and addresses the collective plight of black people. And let me just conclude. Okay, so I've looked at the issue of African-American women in slave revolt to, one, to try to restore their actions to the historical record, to, two, to explore the investments in creating a passive female slave, and, three, to reveal the mechanisms that bring about this pacification. I hope I've begun to show that enslaved African-American women were not passive. Those who are passive do not require such rigorous acts of pacification, as other scholars such as Fanon and Foucault have pointed out, not only speech, but silence itself is a discursive construction. I'm looking at how silence, that is the silence surrounding women's actions in revolt, is a constitutive element of the historical narrative of slave revolt, where the lack of women's agency marks the blank spaces necessary for the words of the sentence to be coherent. But we can interrogate this silence, Anyone who studies African-American women's history must become adept at learning that the spaces between words have their own things to say. It's a view into negative space, an attempt to shed light on how we as historians participate in the ongoing construction of enslaved women as passive. This ongoing project of pacification is an extremely active project, an ongoing technology of gender, and has a profound impact on how African-American women are viewed to this day. This project of pacification must be deconstructed in order to give form to the full range of resistance to systems of racialized gender. Thank you.
6: Good morning. We have such a great lineup, uh, the pros of pacification, and uh, I'll be interrogating just that uh, in my presentation this morning. Uh, What manner of love is this on the edge of Monticello? Dashing Tom, Dusky Sally, and Contemporary Discourses of Plantation Romance. That is the title of my presentation this morning. If we accept the idea that identities are formed in and through language, that is to say the written and the visual, then what might it mean that Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson's 38-year sexual relation is negotiated through recourse to the language of interracial sex or miscegenation as opposed to rape and bodily injury? What lies behind, beyond, or hopelessly entangled in this language? Put simply, what identities are engendered and or protected by such language? In a well-known study, Women, Race, and Class, Angela Davis offers a powerful statement that underpins this presentation. Davis writes, quote, The issue of sexual abuse has been all but glossed over in traditional literature on slavery. It is sometimes assumed that slave women encouraged the sexual attentions of white men. What happened between them, therefore, was not sexual exploitation, but rather miscegenation. This is an old and by no means novel observation, yet we revisit it today given recent historical studies such as Jan Ellen Lewis and Peter O'Neuf's work Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, History, Memory, and Culture, as well as imaginative reconstructions about the legendary romance between Dashing Tom and Dusky Sally, as they were often called in 19th century's tawdry tabloids. Given the recent DNA results confirming that Thomas Jefferson fathered at least one of slave uh, one of his slaves Sally Hemings's several children, I want to use a discussion of Barbara Chase Rabaug's novel Sally Hemings to instigate a critical discussion of the manner in which Black women's sexual injury vanishes and con- it vanished rather and continues to vanish beneath repressive rhetorics of plantation romance, interracial sex, and miscegenation—a misidentificatory or transposed. Move that is parallel to the manner in which 19th-century legal apparatuses had no name or epistemological conception of black women as injurable. As well, I'd like to suggest more broadly that we use my presentation as a catalyst for rethinking the two films that have rep- been reproduced about the Jefferson Hemings liaison. Have people seen these films? Anybody seen the films about Jefferson and Sally Hemings? Okay. Anybody read the book? Okay, anybody heard the rumors? (laughs) All right. I'll sketch out Chase Rabaud's construction of Sally Hemings's character and examine the relationship it bears to 19th century conceptions of black womanhood as debased and demoralizing, what Toni Morrison calls a paradoxically terrorizing and serviceable Africanist presence. My intention is not to dispute the historical existence of the quote-unquote affair between Jefferson and Hemings, but to examine the conditions of possibility and workings of power the author Chase Rabaud, both inscribes and erases from her neo-slave narrative in order to present the jefferson Hemings relation as a quote-unquote love affair. I qualify the use of the term affair here, and I use it advisedly because my analysis implicitly questions whether a discourse of romance can adequately describe or explain sexual relations between masters and their property, or whether provisional sexual choice and coerced compliance can be restaged as conceptual, as consensual relations or strategic submission. I am particularly interested in the manner in which Sally Hemings' subjugation, bondage, and most importantly her rape are represented in most of Chase Rebault's slave narrative, or neo-slave narrative rather, as sublime and romantic if ambivalent and self-deluded enjoyment of domination. In her afterword to the novel, Chase Raboud's argument suggests that her imperative is solely an historical one centered on establishing the credibility of the Jefferson and Hemings liaison as part of African, African American and American history. Much of the afterword addresses the reaction Chase Rebault received from American historians who were and still are jealously guarding Thomas Jefferson's good name. Whether the affair actually happened seems to be the locus of controversy that Chase Rebault's arguments address. But nothing is said in this afterword about the relationship such a work as Sally Hemings might bear to other narratives written by about by or about 19th century black women, or to a larger black women's literary tradition, and the novel was first published in 1979, to give you some context. Perhaps the closest chase Rabaud comes to such an imperative is when she asserts, quote, if Thomas Jefferson offers himself up as a surrogate for meditation on the problem of human freedom, then Sally Hemings is available for meditation on terror, darkness, invisibility, dread of failure, failure, guilt, and powerlessness, end quote. I would like to suggest, however, that is Chase Rabaud as author who constructs Sally Hemings as a character available for meditation on terror, darkness, invisibility, dread of failure guilt and power. Hemings's availability is the result of Chase Rabaul's determined objective of registering the mere possibility of the love affair between Jefferson as president and Hemmings as despised black outcast. In this neo-slave narrative, Sally Hemings functions quite paradoxically as a perfect surrogate for representing and enacting Jefferson's sexual desires. If Jefferson invokes the problematic of human freedom, he does so only to the extent that he functions in this story as a principal power agent in the master-slave dialectic, thereby provoking consideration of how his power is constituted in and through domination and property ownership, property ownership being Sally Hemings. Reading Sally Hemings, I was moved to wonder whether in giving us a character as abject and enamored with her subjection as Hemings, Chase Raboud relies too heavily on the bank of 19th century ideologies, which designated black women eager concubines plotting and reveling in the debasement of whoredom or prostate subalterns devoid of self-agency. Hmm? Or does Chase Rabaud bypass these facile categorizations altogether to disrupt typical conceptions of the master-slave as r- the master or the slave-master rather as rapist and the enslaved woman as a helpless victim? Does she suggest a more complex dimension of concubinage heretofore unexplored in Black women's writing? Certainly, the character Sally extends our critical insight into the complex interchange of power, domination, submission, and resistance inherent in relationships between white slave masters and their black female concubines. I suspect, however, that one reason this neo-slave narrative has not received the critical fanfare other neo-slave narratives have enjoyed, especially in this age of reconstructing black women's history through fiction. I suspect that that reason is because Chase Rabaud problematizes the boundaries that delineate love and obeisance, rape and romance, power and weakness. I'm thinking here of Desa Rose's uh, neo-narrative which has gotten lots of attention and obviously Toni Morrison's neo-slave narrative among others. Even though readers are aware that love between a white slave master and a black enslaved woman was more often than not born of the master's will to power rather than mutual romance. In this narrative concubinage confounds each easy categorization, because intimacy and delicacy figure prominently in the narrator's portraiture of Jefferson and Hemings's relationship. While much of Hemings's story is told in retrospect, the narrative's unfolding captures uh, the mature recollections of the 54-year-old Hemings. So while much of the story is told in retrospect, the narrative resonates with a profound sense of romance, regardless of whether the narrator or Sally Hemings is rendering the story. This sense of romance, though partially mediated by the arguably selective tangles of Hemings's memory, obscures Jefferson's sexual manipulation and rape of the 15-year-old Hemings, who was his daughter's playmate and maid, as it is told in the book. The sight of her rape functions as a space of inversion and ambivalence where fear and violation are transformed quite effortlessly and incredulously into desire and seduction. The terror of Hemings's rape is dramatized as unbridled passion and eager consent. The author uses geographical location, revolutionary France, to displace the implications of sexual subjection inside of a master-slave dialectic and to evade or make unnecessary both Jefferson's moral accountability for rape and the neo-slave narrative's own accountability for how such a violating beginning initiates a love affair. What this is what Barbara Chase-Word says, what makes the story believable, she claims, is precisely that these two personages, Jefferson and Hemings, were taken completely out of their racial and social context and redefined in a France fermenting with ideas of social and personal liberty perhaps chase rebaud 's attempts to register the difficulty uh, she is trying to uh, register rather excuse me the difficulty of applying binary categorizations such as good or bad to rape right. Perhaps she's trying to have us understand what it means for a victim to maintain some kind of relationship with the perpetrator. Perhaps she wants to insert readers into this confused world of sexual of the sexual abuse victim who is torn between the boundaries that demarcate love and abuse. I do not mean to suggest that Chase Berbaud is unaware of the problematic tangle of Hemming's character, or her long-term relationship with Jefferson. I do believe that at some level, Chase Raboud intends for her narrative to incite dialogue about passionate attachments formed in moments of abuse and the bittersweet and often destructive continuation of such relations. I also believe, however, that Chase Raboud loses control of the narrative's credibility as a result of her over-determined imperative to register the possibility, the historical possibility, of the affair between Jefferson and Hemings. Readers are expected, for example, to believe that this adolescent's experience of rape can be seamlessly choked or softened, right, into the subject's easy perception of her violation as romance. For similitude is sacrificed to the extent that the narrative plunges into what I consider an aphoretic grandeur, and Chase Rabaud, very much like those 19th century editors who arrange slave narratives, anxiously attempts to recuperate narrative and historical credibility by providing numerous authenticating appendices to the neo-slave narrative. These appendices plea for the plausibility of the affair between Jefferson and Hemings. Toni Morrison describes this phenomenon as a situation elsewhere, not talking about this book, but she describes this phenomenon as a situation in which, quote, for narrative credibility, the author substitutes her own determination to force the equation. But it is an equation that must take place outside of the narrative. We are outside of the narrative, and so we can judge this equation. Beginning with the jefferson Hemings family tree, which prefaces the novel and brings to bear all the historical authority that a genealogy inscribes, Chase Rebault provides a stream of authenticating extra-textual documents. There is the afterword, which I consider the narrative's redeeming meta-text or its conscience. There is an author's note, which mediates on the the instability of historical narration and therefore argues implicitly for the plausibility of the author's vision of romance. There is a list of Acknowledgements, as well as a list of source documents. And the acknowledgements and the source documents both operate as a ver- verification of the author's scholarly research in preparation for the novel. These interventions function as authoritative and validating additions or editions, <laughs> levitating above and in dialogue with the text proper, yet readers may also consider these appendices as part of Sally Hemings's slave narrative. In Sally Hemings' own voice, her recollections of her relationship with Jefferson seem largely undistinguished from the artful voice of the narrator. The delicacy of language used by both the narrator and Hemings' language, unlike that of Linda Brent, for example, mitigates a clear-cut presentation of Jefferson as rapist manipulator and of Hemings as... uh, It's not time, is it? (laughs) And of Hemings... As uh, his slave, certainly this ambivalence in voice may be read as reflexive of hemings 's own anterior, um, anterior interior rather ambivalence, excuse me, yet a larger question emerges here as well concerning the conflation of voice in the work. what is Uh, the author herself trying to push and trying to have us understand, as opposed to the character that she's trying to manage. What are the conflicts that emerge from that? Is she managing the characters well? I say no. Uh, Let's consider, for example, uh, the the main uh, thing that I'm preoccupied with, which is the scene in which Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson make love, or, if you have another interpretation as I do, when Sally is raped. In a rather self-deluded and destructive vision, which proclaims seduction and submission as the ironic instruments of manipulation, Hemings believes that she can turn love against Jefferson by continuing to acquiesce to his power with such abject docility that she will elicit his guilt. She resolves that, quote, I would live like a perfect slave in perfect love and slavery, and this love would be my strength and my fortress. Never would he forgive himself or his world for it, and never would he escape from it. I would It would be my master who would be branded and bonded to me for forever, I would turn love against the possessor and daze him into the everlasting hell of guilt. If I could not hate him, I would kill him with love, and if I could not kill him, I would maim him forever, cripple and paralyze him, so that he would have no possibility to walk away from me, no voice to deny me. Here Sally is obviously passive-aggressive. She is simultaneously the seductive siren who ensnares her master with her reckless, restless flesh and a trapped, pathetic creature. In the scene in which she is raped, we find Hemings Hemings a fear indelibly linked to sensual desire. The scene complicates the boundaries between violation, desire, and consent and make it difficult for the reader to ascertain where Jefferson's violation of Hemings begins and is differentiated from Hemings' happy submission. It is almost as if Sally Hemings submits to her godlike master using her body as an offering. The terror of rape or the issue of coerced compliance is never discussed as part of the context of their sexual encounter. Instead, nuances of seduction are heavily present, but these too are mixed with fear and desire. The passage describing Jefferson's and Hemmings' first sexual contact uses the language of tenderness, terror, and desire. While on one hand Sally notes that she waited for Jefferson to come to her room and, quote, a thousand times a day fear would overwhelm me, blood would rush to my head, she also notes with what appears to be ambivalent desire that, quote, at night I fell asleep sitting upright on the side of my bed. My body would be turned away from the door, but my head and shoulders would be turned toward it. There was no lock, and I would not have dared turn that key had there been one. I could not face the door lest I invite its opening, yet I could not turn completely away." Quote. The split positioning of Hemmings's body suggests both a sense of closure and an eager invitation. Her body is turned away from the door, seemingly signaling apprehensiveness, yet her head and shoulders are turned toward the door, suggesting not merely watchfulness and anticipation, but in the context of the scene that follows, and the plot in general, an ambivalent sense of desire which obscures her rape and el- excapates Jefferson. Listen to the scene when he comes to her room. I took control of him. I bent forward and pressed a kiss on the trembling hand that had compassed mine, and the contact of my lips with his flesh was so violent that I lost all memory of what came forward. I felt around me an exploding flower, not just of passion and long deprivation, a hunger for things forbidden, for darkness and unreason. There is nothing in the text to tell us what gives us this kind of gap, this gap between I am so afraid and now my contact with his white flesh instigates a certain kind of violent, what the author calls exploding passion. That critical gap, I think, is the place where we as scholars, historians, can intervene and begin to think about what it actually means for rape to be transposed and uh, to be sanitized, if you will, under terms such as interracial sex, uh, miscegenation, especially now that the DNA shows that Thomas Jefferson indeed fathered at least one of Sally Hemings' children. Um, As we look at the data, as we look at the films, as we think about the reimaginings, I think it's imperative that as we we think about the relationship between sanity and the sanitized vocabularies that we want to map over this very moment. Maddening situation. Thank you so much.
7: Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I must say that I am extremely delighted to have had a part in this panel. I congratulate the panelists. I think that what we see here is a multiplicity of voices Um, of approaches, of attitudes towards the subject, but they are all engaged. All the speakers are engaged in the valuable work of extending our knowledge of slavery, dealing with that complex institution from different points of view, and giving women their place within that scene. I truly congratulate these women for the nature of their research, and of course, I think that each one of them has played a role in exploding the myths which surround women and women's participation in the institution of slavery. Um, For my own part, I think, uh, to bring them together, I can only say that they are making women the subject of the discourse, and they are looking at women during the period by using their experience, their own experiences as women, to question some of the assumptions that were made about women's participation, and to show that a lot of these were not merely, um, Um, insouciant, but were um, part of a plan to dehumanize women and and their participation in slavery. Um, For my own part, I would like to just add a little, if you give me two minutes, some of my own thoughts on the position of women in slavery. Um, We know, of course, that they did not have the physical strength of the majority of men. And in addition, they had to bear the grief of childbearing. Um, Often their life was at risk, child rearing, um, community building, keeping the families together, being matriarchs, and so on. But I think women also, showed had various strategies of resistance which I would like to call nonverbal strategies and which I wanted to remind you took place they had strategies both verbal and nonverbal to make up for the lack of strength in for example um, what I know about Jamaican slavery the island in which I was born as a child of the enslaved um, I know that during, in a lot of the documents on slavery, there are endless um, complaints about the fact that women were constantly quarreling, that they used verbal strategies to humiliate um, the slave masters, and that they used quarreling as a strategy to disrupt the process of production so that their tongues were actually feared by the slave masters. And they would, um, they would use um, strategies such as uh, third party um, ridicule And addressing third parties um, while throwing words at the overseers, throwing words at the driver, the drivers were um, often blacks. The people who meted out the punishment and who drove the slaves were blacks who were chosen to be drivers. They had no choice, of course. They had to accept these positions of punishing their own people. But the women really worked on them psychologically by throwing words at other people, which they were meant to hear, and um, they would also use certain strategies like refusing to hear. They would pretend to be deaf when when um people asked them to do work and um, or called to them in some way or they would let women uh, throw their baskets all down and join into the fray. They would cry, they would scream, they would sit on the ground. So they had this way of resisting without using um, physical strength. Of course we know that from our papers that they were also very much Large, um, very large, in the resistance. Some of them are even were even seen to be braver than the men, in that they went to their death very bravely, looking at their executioners, especially in Haiti, Martinique, Guadeloupe, the French islands. So that even though we do not know their names, or their names cannot be excav- excavated, as one of our panelists has. Um, revealed to us uh, because of the process of pacification of women, we nevertheless can um, interpret some of their actions um, in ways other than being simply manipulative in a sexual way. I think they were manipulative in order to resist in very, very crucial ways. They also... um, they also had certain nonverbal threatening things which they did with their eyes, for example. In the Caribbean, we use cutting up the eyes at people and staring at them to intimidate them and to threaten that, um, you know, I will poison you, I'll kill you in your bed, I'll, you know, if you touch me, you're going to be sorry, that kind of attitude which actually still exists in the Caribbean today, that women have developed all these strategies of resistance which perhaps are not talked about but are very, very, were very important in protecting themselves in a situation where their physical cells were at risk their psychological cells were at risk were at risk. We have heard of course about the women who were powerful leaders in the maroon communities I also want to talk about the women who marooned themselves sort of created spaces mental spaces for themselves for relief. For example they made themselves into healers healers, into prophetesses, some of them became totally alienated, they simply took no part in the community, either of the community of blacks or of whites, and in this way created a kind of maroon space mentally in which they could survive. So that um, in this, um, in this um, sort of way of carving out, I think this concept of marinage, particularly as it applies to women, does not, could be interpreted um, and investigated in terms other than running away, um, physically running away, but instead um, withdrawing the persona, withdrawing the spirit, the self from the this um, unmentionable, unbearable institution for one's own survival. So I think that the more we talk about women, we know that this um um that this institution was so large, so complex, and extended over so many centuries that generalizations um, cannot begin to express what actually occurred. So I think that a panel of this nature which focuses on individual stories, on voices, on acts of resistance, acts of accommodation, acts of of understanding. I think they point to the ability of, all of them point to the ability of the black woman, the enslaved woman, to use her mind as well as her body because we have been told over all the centuries that the black women used their bodies to achieve better status. I think what we have seen is that they also use their minds, they use their mother wit, they use their special talents to find place and space and to preserve their lives so that we could be their ancestors, we could be their um, descendants. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you for synthesizing. Now we will please entertain some questions from the floor. Question? Uh, yes, I have, a, I have a question for, uh, for Rebecca Hall. Uh, I'm curious about uh, your uh, statistic that
8: you're that uh, many of the slave voyages in which there were no revolts were those in which women were present, uh, and that the women came from societies that had martial traditions. Uh, a lot of the information that we get is that uh, slaves uh, were drawn from uh, overwhelmingly from stateless societies or small village societies um, that did not have armies. So I'm wondering if you could just um, solve that, you know, conundrum for me. Uh, When you talk about women from societies uh, where women had, uh, you know, played a role in martial tradition, um, are we not to associate that with uh, uh, stateless societies or societies with large states?
5: Right. Well, first of all, let me say I didn't – I wasn't the one who uncovered that – those statistics – That was David Eltis and colleagues in the Transatlantic Database. Um, The part that that I'm looking at is is that in the in my dissertation, the part that deals with these um, um, these martial traditions, I look primarily at the fawn who become when they become defeated, they become much more they become traded. so and the faun have probably the most highly developed female martial tradition um, that we know of uh, on any continent. Um, it, I th- there's documentation in the early 1700s that they had over 10,000 women in their army um, that were, you know, fully armed with blunderbusses. And, and the faun rose to, as a military state to protect their people from being traded. Um, in terms of like the, the classic stateless society, I'm looking at Igbo, right? And they were traded a lot because there was no state to protect them. Um, that, uh, this part, uh, the, the sources I have are a little tricky. I've got, I've got Equiano's narrative that talks about how women uh, fought to defend the villages against slave, slavers with, with swords. Um, I've got current anthropological data that says that Igbo women are all taught self-defense and have f- historically been, that it's just part of their uh, coming to womanhood. Um, and another area that I'm looking at is the, um, the Indongo, the, the, the issue of, of, of what's now called Angola. Um, and there's been some work on the Stono Rebellion uh, talking about martial traditions and its impact, uh, African martial traditions and uh, bases of resistance uh, 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 from Congo-Angola, but then assuming it's all men who participated in these revolts because they were the ones who had the… Does that help at all?
8: Yes, uh, very often uh, one associates statelessness with Uh, vulnerability to the slave trade and when someone says martial tradition you think state Uh, so uh, I was just wondering how to to reconcile those two.
5: I just I use the term martial tradition just to the the problem is is that you know there there has been work there's been the issue of women fighting you know committing coordinated violent acts of revolt is very threatening and um, and I'm curious to know why it's so scary. And the, the work that's been done in, in African history, um, there hasn't been much work done using actual primary sources. Some, some scholars say, of course, there were women warriors in Africa. But they don't do any of the, any work to prove it, you know, that, to look at any, take up any of the primary sources. And so they get sort of dismissed as these are just something to fuel our imaginary, just some abstract whatever. Um, you know, I'm not even trying to get into the debate about whether or not, you know, cultures in Africa, Africal, African cultural legacies uh, created bases for resistance in the Americas. I'm just interested in how the, the legacy of African culture has been wielded by historians today um, to exclude women from slave revolt by saying that women don't have a tradition of, of co- coordinated violent actions. And so i and I feel like if I can show that there is a history and document it, th- th- I need them to show me why. You know, then then the ball is in their court. T- tell me why you're assuming this. And I just use the term martial tradition because um, maybe I should use a different word. D- maybe you could t- give me a, d- another suggestion. But
3: could we move to the next question, please?
9: Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, I just have, uh I have a comment and a question. The, 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 the question is for Dr. Spencer. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know much about uh, literary critique, uh, but uh, my, my question really is for you to educate me. Uh, Is there a difference between uh, criticizing uh, a work of literature in terms of context and things like that, and uh, the kind of thing that historians would do, asking whether what is being presented uh, represents uh, historical truth. Uh, So each time I I, I listen to literary uh, experts, I always wonder uh, which of the two things they are doing. Are they questioning the historical validity? of what has presented, or simply yet uh, doing uh, their own things about uh, literary criticism. Uh, I have watched a number of these uh, historical films, uh, particularly those uh, that deal uh, with the Atlantic slave trade, uh, and I can't think of any of them that I like uh, in terms uh, of how much uh, historical truth that uh, they contain, uh, and uh, again, uh, not knowing uh, much about uh, the, the true history uh, of the Jefferson case, I I watched the film that you talked about, uh, and I really can't uh, distinguish uh, between uh, what has been presented uh, as uh, historical truth uh, as uh, distinguished uh, from uh, the, the imagination, uh, the literary imagination uh, of uh, the uh, script writer. So uh, that's the, the, the question I have. Uh, the comment is a very brief one, and it's more of uh, a suggestion for people who have been talking about uh, slave breeding. Uh, What I suggest they should do in terms of methodology uh, is to look at uh, slave prices and ask the question at what point uh, in price uh, is slave breeding profitable? Uh, If I may give an illustration here, we know that uh, oil existed, the crude oil existed in the North Sea. Uh, all along. Uh, The companies, the oil companies knew that there was oil in the North Sea. But for as long as oil coming from OPEC was so cheap, uh, it wasn't profitable to uh, produce oil from the North Sea until the 1970s uh, when OPEC organized and raised prices uh, so highly Uh, that it became profitable to produce uh, oil from the North Sea. So if you use prices, you may be able to come to terms with some of the issues being raised as to at what point uh, slave breeding becomes profitable. Thank you.
6: Is that second, I'm sorry, is that second part for me or no, for the, No, 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 the, oh, it's
9: just, okay. a, just a, comment. That's a, that's a comment. I see. That's a comment and a suggestion. So I those see. In it came up yesterday, and I think it's come up again this morning in some form.
6: I see. Thank you. Um, let me address your question, or try to at least. Uh, it's an excellent question. Uh, there is often that blurring between historical uh, revisions and, and real f- quote-unquote facts that happen sometimes, African American women's literature. And one of the reasons that happens is because black women have been de- disenfranchised for so long, our voices have been excluded for so long, that one of the mediums, or media rather, that they turn to is, uh, is uh, films and literature, writing, books. But what I tried to show in the presentation and what I tried to um, underscore by talking about the different parts of, of, of the novel is that an immense amount of historical research went into it. So the appendices, the genealogy map in the front of it, these things are real things and and yet the author takes a little bit of creative license with reimagining the story. Now my contestation of the story of course is built upon Um, Looking at actual black women's slave narratives, narratives like Linda Brent's narrative, Elizabeth Keckley's slave narratives, Ellen Craft's slave narrative, any number of 19th century black women who wrote about their experiences with their masters and the fact that they were either raped or there was that kind of situation where they could be raped and so they escaped and this kind of thing. And so that's where my contestation of the vision that Chase Rabaud presents comes from. It comes from looking at that imagining in relationship to black women slave narratives. But I have to say, in Chase Rabaud's defense and in black women's defense um, who write literature, We've been excluded from the historiography and you've done a good job of showing, black women historians are the ones that have come in and we do work about black women. And for the most part, what you have is people who write literature also trying to do that. So you have this kind of blurring. And then another thing, food for thought, that people in literature talk about all the time and hardcore historians do not like this and will not like this, but all historical, all things are narratives. And so you're talking about looking in an archive anyway at something that so-and-so wrote down and uh, it may not be that that may not be the, the truth as it were it's the best that we have and as far as African um, people are concerned and African American people are concerned there's always a contestation of the record and so I suspect that the truth always lies somewhere in between and that's that gap that I'm saying that we need to get into that's the best I can do.
5: Can I add just one sentence to that? Because I, I am a hardcore historian. <laughs> um, I, I like to think. Anyway, um, the, the story that I told of the robber, um, it, it it's a narrative. It's somebody telling the facts of what happened. But you, you can see that the perspective they brought into it completely shapes the primary source. So we as historians, I think, have quite a bit to learn from literary criticism which I used to hate you know Um, because I was like what are you guys talking about you know it's like I don't understand your language and you're talking about something that's not even real you know but we have so much to learn from 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 the the techniques they use to help us to, to, to try to get to read against the grain of of the of the primary sources
3: in the interest of time, we will have one more very short question, please. Okay. And those of you who have more questions, uh, there is a question and answer period from four to five. You will hold them, and we will discuss at that time. So one more short question. I saw a hand over
9: I, there. Actually, I had two short questions. The first, okay, the first question was, um, probably for Rebecca Hall, have you considered – Researching slave rebellions in Cuba. Cuba is a vast storehouse of of uh, slave culture, as as it's been, or African culture, as it's been practiced by slaves. And there are still remnants of Africans of uh, military societies that still exist there. The second question is, the first article I ever read, and this could be for anybody, the first article I ever read on women in slave society was written by Angela Davis, probably in 1970 or 71, and my question was for anybody, how far back does the research go, or what was the earliest research done on women in in slave societies?
5: 1971. I'm serious, I think her article might have been the first. Does anyone know of any? It was
9: written while she was in jail. Too. Exactly, oh,
5: isn't that ironic? Uh, I, I don't know of any other work specifically on women slaves history of uh, of women slaves before 1971. I mean, you would occasionally get stuff like on you know there'd be a chapter you know on a like in the slave slave community or you know other books there'd be a chapter on sex roles or something.
1: I would look in the Journal of Negro History, see what they have there. Yeah. Start I, about 1916. Yeah.
5: yeah.
1: In the general what? The
5: Journal the of the Negro History. History. Yeah.
1: I, I have looked.
5: I, I don't see. There, there's articles on day-to-day resistance that talk about women that were written in the 30s and 40s. But. No, there's stuff. There's stuff. The,
2: it's
6: not. A,
3: Well, thank you very much. I think we all have been enlightened by this
2: panel. And it was my privilege to be here this panel.
0: Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom have to wow. And before I'd be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free.